Welcome back. I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom, where I try to cut through the BS and the smoke and mirrors and lay out exactly what the clowns are trying to do to you and what is coming next. Bloomberg's in-house economists just dropped a savage new report that traded their standard China cheerleading for some doom, contending that China, quote, may never overtake the U.S. economy. Meanwhile, the U.S. Commerce Secretary is now warning China has become, quote, uninvestable for foreign companies who had long seen it as a free market paradise. So this is a big deal because for 35 years now, it has been an article of faith that China was going to inherit the earth. China's rise inevitable, and we were all living on borrowed time. Now, don't get me wrong, we are living on borrowed time. The disastrous policies made since the 2008 crisis, really since Richard Nixon, are putting us on an unsustainable path to permanent stagflation, flattening our growth prospects until we finally hit that financial singularity that is too big to bail out. The problem is China is headed to the same place, maybe even faster. I've done a couple recent videos on China's rapid collapse. In short, she channeled trillions to politically favored industries at the expense of the dynamic bits of the economy, leading to both manufacturing and property now in freefall. Those two sectors make up half of China's economy, much more than the U.S., so that's dragging the entire country down, leading to rising joblessness, especially among the young who always get fired first. And, as in this country, financial and bank failures spreading like wildfire. Bigger and bigger they march towards that moment Beijing can't bail them all out. Now, Bloomberg takes this clown show and runs with it, citing deep-seated structural problems, predicting a slower China for decades to come. Specifically, they now think China could momentarily pip the U.S. sometime in the 2040s, but then immediately fall behind again as China's population shrivels, thanks to their idiotic one-child policy that appears to have become a social norm. So seven years after one child ended, China's currently sporting 1.09 births per woman. For a sense, if that continued for a generation, or for three generations, a century, China's population would drop eightfold to about half what it is in the U.S. Now, keep in mind, that doesn't mean China's poor. It simply means they're number two, maybe number three if India keeps plugging away, which doesn't really matter day to day. It's more of a prestige and power thing, but it is a big change from the doomsday predictions of the past decades. And it suggests that China may already be past its peak of power. So what's next? I think Bloomberg's being short-sighted. She is not immortal. And China has a lot more free market bureaucrats than the U.S. or, God forbid, Europe. Yes, China's in for some lean days. And those would hit a lot of poor countries like Africa who depend on exports to China. But she himself has got a lot of opposition inside the Chinese government, despite building a personal police state, so he could retire surprisingly soon. Moreover, the victory laps are delusional, because unless the West reverses our rapid plunge into socialism, the Asian policy mix will win, whether or not China's on board. So what we see in Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, where the economy is nurtured because it is the social safety net, because prosperity leads to the rest, rather than today's West, which crushes the real economy to buy votes or to fund activists who prefer to burn things instead. A whopping $7.6 trillion in interest-bearing public debt, which is 31% of the total, is coming due in the next year. 
Who will buy it? And when they buy it, what will it cost us? A new report from Apollo Asset Management tallies up the maturities on our impressive federal debt and concludes that $7.5 trillion will come due in the next 12 months, meaning it will either have to be paid back, which is a joke, or it will have to be replaced with brand new debt. Note that is on top of the existing deficit on everything else. So this means we could be looking at nearly $10 trillion being sucked out of the productive economy and into Washington's Eye of Sauron, where your life savings go to die. For perspective, the entire U.S. banking system has slightly over $20 trillion, and the federal government is about to be in the market for 10 Of course, they'll get it because they can pay whatever it takes. After all, it is your money that they are bidding with. So yes, the government always eats first. The problem is this drains enormous sums from the productive economy. It leaves less for small businesses or households to borrow. So many will not be able to borrow at all. Washington already used it up. And those who do get loans will have to pay higher interest, which comes on top of the Fed's panic hikes they swear will continue until the economy is sufficiently crushed to sugarcoat the trillions they have already printed. The fund does not stop there because almost all of that $7.5 trillion is old debt, meaning it was cheap from the near zero interest rates we've had for most of the past 15 years. So now it has to be refinanced at much higher rates, like 4 or 5%. Based on that, Apollo estimates that we'll be looking at an additional $300 billion in interest payments alone, bringing federal interest to $1.3 trillion per year, which is not far from what we spend on Social Security. So what is next? Even these dire numbers are all assuming orderly markets that Washington muscling in with a $10 trillion checkbook, half the size of the U.S. banking system, does not disrupt debt markets, which would drive rates higher yet. Perhaps because investors doubt the federal government's future insolvency, so they demand more to buy it. Meanwhile, our government has lined up pretty much every duck in the pond to send rates higher yet. The Fed is currently running down its treasury holdings by $95 billion per month, while China, Japan, Saudi Arabia, pretty much the entire world are selling dollars. These are taking buyers out of the market just when that 10 trillion comes looking for a home. Now, since 2008, especially since the pandemic, Washington has gone on a spending orgy, building up eye-watering levels of debt at record speed. In a zero interest rate world, they treated like free money, as did voters. Now, inflation, de-dollarization, worldwide recession are combining to make it very much not free, potentially turning that federal debt into a catastrophic albatross, crushing our dwindling productive economy. Recently, the Wall Street Journal ran an article on the sad state of once mighty Germany. Beset by suicidal energy policies, Chinese overcapacity and worldwide recession, Germany is going through a bad stretch with factory orders down 12% on the month. Germany's manufacturing sector has had a difficult year so far. It has faced lower orders, weaker outputs and high prices, while the Purchasing Managers Index, or PMI, for manufacturing fell for a sixth consecutive month in July. The journal cites one economist saying the situation, quote, can only be described as bleak. In fact, since the end of last year, Germany's manufacturing output has been stagnant between higher costs and evaporating demand. This has pulled down the entire economy, with GDP growing in only one of the past five quarters. In fact, it's smaller today 
than it was a year and a half ago. Industrial production was down again last month and is now down 4% on that year and a half. Purchasing power of German families, what they can buy, is also down 4%, ravaged by inflation while wages have failed to keep up. This is happening most dramatically in food, with Germans now buying 5.3% less food than a year ago. It's one thing if people aren't taking vacations, but cutting back on food because you can't afford it has a certain third world vibe. Meanwhile, China is piling on thanks to endemic overproduction in China, courtesy of cheap government loans from Beijing. These brought a flood of cheap goods that are now swamping Germany. To give a sense, China can build roughly 10 million more cars than it uses. They got to go somewhere and they go cheap. So what is next? Near term data says more pain for Germany with business surveys reporting an acceleration in falling output. Meanwhile, new data says the pain is spreading to the rest of the economy, in particular to services, which make up about 70 percent of the German economy. Optimists had hoped that services would rescue dying manufacturing, but it is not. The prestigious Kiel Institute now estimates Germany's economy will contract again this quarter, bringing 2023 growth to negative 0.5%, which is a recession. In recent videos, I've talked about Europe's toxic combination of unicorn fart environmental policies, along with their obsession with replacing the productive economy with trillions in crony handouts that would make a Soviet five-year planner proud. I've also mentioned that Europe's voters are getting fed up with their slow descent into the abyss. Well, in some countries, not so slow. Alas, Europe's ruling clowns know this, which is why their top goal is not getting back to prosperity. It is shutting up or ideally imprisoning the skeptics, because that is what liberal democracies do. Unfortunately, America is not far behind. A word from our sponsors. If you follow Bitcoin, you probably know that the halving is just six months away, meaning we're about to get a big drop in the supply of new Bitcoin. We've seen that this can send Bitcoin's price up, so selling Bitcoin now to cover expenses could end up costing you. Credit card rates recently hit 24%, but borrowing against your Bitcoin with Unchained can save you a lot. You hold your keys and you can verify that your Bitcoin is secure anytime. Don't be forced to sell the bottom and miss out. For more info, go to Unchained.com and use promo code PETER to get $50 off concierge onboarding. As we've been predicting for months, inflation isn't dead. It's not even resting. In fact, it is rising again. Will the Fed finally go full goblin mode? Fresh numbers from the BLS reported month-on-month -month inflation at 0.6% for August. That's a 7.5% annualized pace. Core inflation came in lower at 0.3, but even that was double last month, also an acceleration. By the way, that marks fully two years that core has been above 4%. Services inflation, which the Fed was hail marrying as a savior, re-accelerated to the fastest pace in five months. What sent inflation soaring again was food, gasoline up 10.5% on the month, rent up now 40 consecutive months, and a special appearance by car insurance, which leapt 19% in a year. That's the biggest jump since 1976, when Jimmy Carter was still fiddling with his thermostat in the dark. Used car prices kept falling, 
Perhaps because people can no longer afford to drive, you will ride a bicycle and you will be happy. What is hitting food is a worsening drought in the Midwest. What's hitting gasoline is production cuts by Saudi Arabia, Russia, and their OPEC friends. Plus, of course, Joe Biden, who pays his activists by impoverishing you. The Saudis are upset that Biden drained the Strategic Petroleum Reserve without warning them, which he did to buy the midterm elections with cheap gas. Biden did that on purpose, of course. You can't buy an election if the Saudis reverse your drain, but it costs the Saudis a lot of money and they feel betrayed by Biden, as many of us do. So what is next? The Fed is meeting next week to consider rate hikes. The great debate had been whether they wait and see with a bias towards more hikes or wait and see with a bias to cutting. The key trade-off being if the economy is strong, they lean towards hikes. And if inflation keeps going, even if it's just stuck, they also lean towards hikes. I mentioned recently why, when it comes to inflation, a tie is a loss for the Fed. Because they're afraid that the longer inflation keeps going, the more it becomes entrenched and harder to kill. Because it gets baked in to prices, long-term contracts, and salary negotiations. We're actually seeing that right now with auto workers demanding a 50% pay hike from Detroit. So with those stakes, recent GDP strength, fortified by trillion-dollar deficits, was already putting the Fed off its meals. Now with inflation not only stuck but re-accelerating, that's one more factor to distend the Fed's delicate constitution, send them reaching for those rate hikes. Because above all, the Fed is afraid of being head-faked again, with inflation falling only to resurge as they were in 2021 and 2022, each time thinking they had turned the corner only to disappoint us all. I've mentioned in recent videos that as much as the Fed is living on borrowed time in terms of inflation, the longer it lasts, the longer it stays, they're also living on borrowed time in terms of the recession, given the typical 18-month lag between rate hike and economic devastation. So, on both counts, this supposed Goldilocks economy we're all enjoying is running out of time. In the first honest Federal Reserve paper in some time, the Fed issued a new report that found the runaway inflation of the past few years was not, in fact, caused by greedy grocery stores. That, as we all knew, it was the $6 trillion pumped out by a power-mad Congress and their in-house money printers at the Fed. Alas, famous influencer Alejandro Ocasio-Cortez is not buying it. The Congresswoman, who is the only representative from the Bronx with an economics degree from Boston University was in the memes this week for posting an Instagram story by New Zealand eco-communist declaring that inflation is actually right-wing propaganda, a psyop to trick the normies into checking the prices on their grocery receipts, that the true cause of inflation is corporate profits, grocers and barbers hiking prices because they suddenly got greedy, but they weren't greedy before. Asked about the Congresswoman's Marxist theories, the New York Post quoted several of her blue-collar Bronx constituents. One said, are you crazy? Which is what New Yorkers say when they disagree. Another seemed upset about killing herself working two jobs to feed her family. One suggested that getting free $30,000 ballroom dresses insulates one from the price of milk. At any rate, here's what the Fed said. That corporate profits were not, in fact, abnormally high during the Great Inflation. That they instead followed, quote, fiscal and monetary factors. In other words, federal spending and the trillions the Fed printed to finance it, which were then dumped out 
to compete with our own dollars. Now, profits did spike momentarily, the paper found, but inflation always does that since old inventory was bought cheap and now you can sell it at the new price. But by the end of last year, even that accounting quirk was gone and profit margins were right back where they were pre-pandemic. Prices, of course, were much higher, but companies were not doing any better. Greed, alas, was unchanged. By the way, margins are now falling even more as the recession hit. So American Airlines just warned of an 80% drop in profits, although to be fair, maybe they just got 80% less greedy. Of course, economists have known this all for centuries, that inflation is caused by more money in circulation. This should be obvious. If you go to Japan, a coffee is 400 yen, but it only costs five bucks back home. This could be because Japanese cafes are 80 times greedier than American cafes, but it's more likely because there's a lot of yen in the world, thanks to Japan's hyperinflation in the 1890s and 1940s that took $1 to 140 yen today. I've mentioned in recent videos how the Fed, really all central banks, scapegoat inflation on greedy businesses and greedy workers to set the right against the left and keep the people fighting whilst they print. Of course, this is willful deception considering the Fed employs hundreds of PhD economists who surely know the century-old quantity theory of money that forms the basis of modern understanding of inflation and who apparently even use it in their own research. Alas, Marxist politicians are not buying it because they are precise precisely the ones who most want the people to fight for their own reasons. I was on the Charles Payne show last week talking about the progressive collapse of the once great city of New York. And Charles brought up the parallels with Edward Gibbon's classic book on the fall of Rome. The outward parallels with Rome are a perfect fit for New York. What was once the greatest engine of prosperity in the world, of world-changing innovation in a global center of culture, has now become a crumbling parody. Gibbons wrote around the time of the American Revolution, and he wanted to know why Rome collapsed. Today, historians focus on Gibbons' symptoms, the consequences of that decline. The moral decay, the economic decline, the fall in public safety, the hollowed-out military that ultimately invited barbarian invasions. But we know those well. In fact, we're living through some of them. What's a lot more interesting is the why, because that's how you stop it. And the cause from Gibbons is threefold. Economic mismanagement, political corruption, and endless foreign wars. On economics, the key policies in the twilight of Rome were inflation through debasement of the currency. Alas, paper money had not yet been printed, so instead they shaved the coins. Paired with confiscatory taxes... That wiped out commerce and small industry while literally chasing farmers off the land. Many became casual laborers in the cities living on free bread. Welfare today. Finally, predatory regulation. Multiplying rules brought bought by special interests that ran down the productive capital of society, until like dying embers, Rome's prosperity went dark. The government reacted not by pulling back or correcting course, but by accelerating. The bread and circuses multiplied to distract an angry populace. Civil unrest multiplied as classes fought over a shrinking pie. And above all, foreign wars were used to refocus the population on an external enemy, to drain the cities of military-age men, and to reach for the occasional glory as Rome vanquished yet another far-off people at pyrrhic cost in blood and treasure. Taken together, the empire bankrupted itself, hollowed out its economy, then used the government and war to squander what was left. The fall of Rome holds a sobering lesson for us today because the patterns are so obvious and because every 
fall of empire follows the same pattern. The Gupta of 6th century India, the Song Dynasty in China, the Spanish Empire. So what is next? I believe there is still time. Millions are waking up to what's happening and resolving to reverse it. We are still losing ground, yes, but I believe we are turning the tide in popular opinion. It's important to remember we have done this many times. The Renaissance, the Victorian era, the Meiji Restoration have all reversed, led by men and women of resolve. And the sooner we reverse it, the fewer will suffer. A few days ago, New York Mayor Eric Adams gave a speech warning of the, quote, financial tsunami as migrants flood into the city. This issue will destroy New York City. Destroy New York City. We're getting 10,000 migrants a month. Costing a projected $12 billion in the next two years. Now he wants to cut police hours to instead spend billions on an endless flood of uninvited migrants now hitting 10000 per month. Mayor Adams went on to warn the flood will, quote, destroy New York, saying there is no more room. With migrants now being housed in every nook and cranny in New York, from public school gyms to luxury hotels on the taxpayer dime. Crowding out New York's own 80,000 homeless who do not, alas, get luxury hotels. So now Adams is cutting the police to make room, presumably with other cuts to essential services to follow. It really feels surreal to watch New York City descend into this sort of quicksand of misery. But the quicksand is made up of policies, New York City policies. Your thoughts? That's exactly right. Uh, People voted for this and they're going to keep getting it as long as they keep voting for it. You know, usually governments cut the police to pressure voters. You know, it's like nice city you have here. Be ashamed something happened to it. Then voters have to pony up for our budget. In this case, they're doing it on purpose, not even hiding it. It's almost like they're looking for an excuse to cut the police, to leave, you know, inner city crime victims defenseless and to put it all on behalf of this unlimited flow of overseas migrants. Now, as traumatic as this all is for New York, the migrant crisis is nothing new for the border states that have been putting up with it. Texas has been paying billions for Biden's open borders. What's new is they're coming to places influential liberals care about. Of course, the biggest victims are not those influential liberals. They are working class New Yorkers. Many of them resent that migrants have jumped the line to hog scarce resources and legal migrants who resent that they played by the rules and now their schools are overcrowded or requisitioned. They have to compete for jobs with people who apparently have no problem breaking the law, presumably including working off the books cheap, while legal immigrants' neighborhoods will soon be invaded by tens of thousands of people with zero vetting, not even criminal checks, who will now be their neighbors. So what is next? The Dems are making an unforced error with endless migration, but they're painted in a corner. After four years characterizing any limit on open borders as literally orange man, their most loyal voters are sick of it now that it's hitting their neighborhoods and apparently soon their policing. But that now brings us to a second corner that they are painted into, which is defunding the police. In those very same low-income neighborhoods that for generations have been left to criminal predators who victimize the poor. I don't think the Dems will change course. Once you turn something into a moral crusade, you really can't back down. They'll only change when the victims, their voters, get angry. The New York taxpayers saddled with $12 billion in welfare and counting. The young mothers sleeping with a baseball bat or praying every time they go into a parking garage. 
They voted for this. It is up to them to vote it out. Thanks to our gaslighting media, however, I am not holding my breath. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to get next week's episode right in your inbox and visit petersanons.com for all the videos, archives, and fresh articles about economics and freedom. Okay, we'll be watching. See you next time.